So I want to start by just uh, telling you a little bit about uh, Not By Works, and uh, we may repeat some of this over the weekend as we move into uh, Saturday and Sunday, but uh, Not By Works is our primary ministry. We've been around since 1999, and uh, as we introduce uh, the topic for tonight's two sessions in a few moments, I'll tell you how I got interested in uh, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, which is our mission uh, as a ministry. And uh, so we have, uh, we've traveled and spoken to churches all across the country, and uh, really uh, our goal is to, again, awaken people to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And so when Mark invited me to come, as he said, originally our focus was, was on uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, which is what we'll be doing Saturday and Sunday, but he asked me to kick off the conference by talking about uh, my favorite subject, which is the gospel. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. Um, we do have some resources here. I may mention some of those at the end uh, tonight, but I hope you'll take uh, advantage of some of the stuff that's there. We didn't bring everything because uh, obviously we had to ship our stuff, whereas normally we can pull a trailer and bring, uh, bring things. But uh, we do have a lot of materials available at the Not By Works website, so I hope you'll, you'll check that out as well. But I've known Mark for many, many years. Uh, he is a great uh, friend, and he's also a great pastor. You don't know how blessed you are uh, to, uh, to have uh, such a great man of God who knows the Word and uh, preaches it boldly, and clearly we've collaborated on a couple of books, actually, and I really find him to be an incredibly gifted writer, much more so than me. I often tell him that with his looks and his brains, we make a good team, so uh, he has been a great blessing to me. Uh, we've had Mark come speak at some of the churches that we've been at uh, over the years, and, and so it's a delight to get to speak in, uh, in, in here at Pioneer Baptist. Um, so tonight, I want to, uh, to talk a little bit about what the gospel is not. And by the way, I know we've got some folks live streaming. We, not By Works has also kind of promoted this, and they, we may have some folks from the Not By Works ministry or our home church as well, Plum Creek Chapel. We want to welcome them. Uh, those that are watching by live stream. Uh, but I don't think I have to tell anybody that the gospel is under attack today more than in any other time in human history. You know, we know that uh, according to God's word, uh, Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. He hates the gospel because the gospel is the good news about how mankind can be rescued from the penalty of sin. So everything that Satan is, a liar, a murderer, as Jesus said in John 8, 44, uh, was uh, undone at Calvary. And uh, we see through the cross and the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the remedy to man's predicament. And Satan hates that. So his goal in life, Satan's that is, is to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. He wants to keep the lost from hearing the gospel so that they won't believe it unto eternal life. And he wants to keep the saved confused about the gospel, even though they may know the Lord by faith alone and Christ alone. They end up wallowing around in a life of guilt and confusion and wondering and questioning and doubt whether they're really saved, all because Satan has promoted a false gospel, and indeed many uh, false gospels. So uh, tonight, what I'm going to do is split this into two parts, and uh, we have a DVD series on all of this. I won't be able to really cover it in as great a detail as I normally would, but hopefully I can hit the highlights. The first part is going to be why this matters. Why is it important to really drill down and get the gospel right? And then the second part, after our break, I'll come back and give you 10 common misunderstandings of the gospel, 10 
false gospels, if you will. And, you know, what I've learned in 32 years of ministry, and, and I've been passionate about the gospel from the beginning. Uh, in fact, in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to how I this became the real passion of my life, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. But in 32 years of ministry, what I've learned is I can talk about what the gospel is all day long, and people will respond with an overwhelmingly unanimous chorus of amens. But when I begin to talk about what the gospel is not, that's when I step on toes and people get, uh, get a little bit frustrated. And so I hope you'll listen carefully to everything we're going to cover tonight. I cannot uh, imagine that, uh, that in a group this size there won't be one or two things maybe you've never really contemplated before. But the gospel really is simple, and it really is clear. There's no ambiguous nature of it. If there's one thing the Bible is clear about, it is the gospel. And you can state the gospel in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the essence of the gospel. But what has happened, again, because as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us, Satan is trying to blind men's hearts to the gospel, is he's added all of these extras to the gospel on the front end or the back end. And getting the gospel wrong, I call those prerequisites and postrequisites. Uh, and consequently, today, we've grown up in a culture that uh, is uh, very ambiguous when it comes to the gospel. And I'm going to talk about how we got there. But how did I, how did I become interested in this? So... I grew up in a Christian family. I was saved at the age of six. Uh, I'm very blessed to, to have uh, Christian parents. And uh, my, in fact, my grandfather was a preacher, and he went to Dallas Seminary. And uh, so I come from a long line of people that really are passionate about the Word of God and, and, and the gospel. And uh, but even though I was saved at a young age, uh, I never really thought a lot about the clarity of the gospel until I had graduated from college and was headed off to seminary. And I grew up Baptist, and so I had been uh, planning uh, to go to New Orleans Baptist Seminary because it was what I could afford. Even though my grandfather had gone to Dallas, and I always had a dream of going to Dallas Seminary uh, because, again, of his influence, I knew when the time came we just couldn't afford it. And uh, so because I was Southern Baptist, New Orleans Baptist was, came recommended to me. Another one of my mentors had gone there. So I was all set to go. I had enrolled. I had picked out a dorm room. And I was just a few weeks from heading off to New Orleans from Houston, where I grew up, to start school for, for my master's. Well, at the 11th hour, God opened a door for me to go to Dallas Seminary. Uh, a recruiter from Dallas came down just you know, over the summer trying to get enrollment up at the school. And he had heard that I had an interest in, in DTS. And so he came over to my parents' house where I was living and said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about Dallas. And I said, I'd love to go. I can't afford it. He said, well, let's talk about this. He said, what if we could get you a little bit of scholarship money and get you a job and, and uh, maybe some grants. And if we can get you enough to go one semester, will you step out on faith and give it a shot? Well, of course, I happily said, yes, absolutely. So uh, that's what we did. I got a job uh, loading trucks in a warehouse and uh, got a little bit of scholarship money and was able to cobble together enough funds to go for one semester. And it was the greatest decision I ever made. The Lord provided every step of the way after that and uh, opened doors. And, and I you know, changed jobs a couple times, but got different uh, jobs and was able to get through it. But when I told one of the pastors at the home church where I'd grown up, or at least from high school on I'd grown up, that I had changed my direction and was not going to New Orleans, but was going to DTS, 
this pastor, who I didn't really know all that well, he, he was not there, had not been there that long. It's a large church, and he was just one of the staff members. He said, oh, Dallas, boy, I wouldn't go there. Well, I mean, I'm a 22-year-old kid and didn't know much other than that everybody loves Dallas. It's, it's you know, how could you not like Dallas Seminary, right? I mean, uh, you know, I thought growing up you had to be three things to get to heaven, Baptist, a Dallas Seminary graduate, and a Dallas Cowboys fan, you know? And uh, so, of course, I've grown to understand that really only one of those uh, is necessary. And uh, in case you were wondering, they are, they are kicking off the NFL season tonight. And uh, my sons are, are watching the game. And uh, they just texted me that uh, Tampa Bay is leading 21 to 16 at the two-minute warning. So it's not looking good for my boys. But anyway, um, so I was really stunned that this guy would speak ill of Dallas Seminary, and he said, yeah, you shouldn't go there because they teach this cheap grace stuff. Well, I didn't know what that meant. So he gave me a book by a guy by the name of John MacArthur called um, The Gospel According to Jesus. Well, believe it or not, at 22 years of age, growing up in Baptist and Bible churches, we moved a lot. My dad was in the military, but primarily in Baptist churches. I had never heard the name John MacArthur, had no idea who this was. So he gave me this book. I ended up going up to Dallas three weeks before classes started to work at this warehouse, and I was staying in the dorm. Hardly any other students had moved in yet. So I would work all day uh, at this warehouse, come home, nothing to do. Classes hadn't started yet, and I started reading this book by a guy named John MacArthur. And uh, it was confusing to me. I wasn't quite sure what he was saying, but I noticed he referenced another guy uh, in the book frequently in criticism of him by the name of Zane Hodges. And so I thought, well, I better read that book, see what this guy has to say directly from his perspective. So I went out and bought that book. And by the time classes had started, in just three weeks, I had read both books, and I'd become hooked on the issue of grace, the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, having never even recognized that there was a debate within Christianity over the essence of the gospel. I now was thrown right into the middle of it. And so I started taking different electives on the issues of the gospel. I would attend brown bag luncheons when speakers would come in that would talk about the issues of the gospel. And that was in 1990, and from that point on, I've been hooked. And so uh, this is an issue that is near and dear to me for personal reasons, but it also should be near and dear to every believer because nothing matters more than the clarity of the gospel. You know, you can disagree about a lot of things in God's word, and we should do so graciously and good-naturedly. You know, how often you have communion, uh, you know, th those types of uh, whether the communion bread is crunchy or not. You know, I had a family leave the church one time because our communion bread was too crunchy. I'm not sure that rises to the level of separation. But anyway, uh, there are things you can disagree on, uh, but the gospel is not one of them. And so it really should be something that we're all interested in. Uh, but it's something that has really been the driving passion of our ministry. We started Not By Works in 1999. I spent 12 years in academics full-time, and then uh, during my time in academics launched uh, Not By Works, our 501c3, and it eventually became our primary ministry and has been for many years. You'll notice of the different books that we have, about half of them are on something related to the doctrine of salvation. Uh, and the other half, which is my second favorite subject, are related to eschatology, study of end times, which we'll get into Saturday and Sunday. So I want to start with uh, why is this important? You know why it's important to me now, but why should it be important uh, to everyone? So let me give you some statistics. These are from a survey of 35,071 adults. Now, obviously, all surveys 
have their limitations. We're not saying this is necessarily empirical evidence, but it's a pretty good indication. And this was a very large sample by Pew Research studying the religious landscape. And here's some of the statistics that they uh, discovered. For example, 96% of Hindus say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Okay, that doesn't really surprise me, knowing uh, about Hinduism. 83% of Buddhists say many religions can ultimately lead you to eternal life. Uh, this one surprised me a little bit. 80% uh, of mainline Protestants say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. But if you know anything about what these terms mean, mainline Protestants tends to refer today anyway to uh, denominations that have long ago abandoned the authority of God's word, the inerrancy of scripture, the Bible as the only standard for our beliefs, things like that. So I guess that shouldn't really surprise me. 79% of Jews say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. And similarly, 79% of Catholics say the same thing. Watch this, 65% of Muslims say they believe that many religions lead, can lead to eternal life. But with that background, what about American Christianity? And I was really stunned to find out that 60% of American Christians say that many religions can lead to eternal life. In other words, we have now surpassed Muslims in terms of the percentage of people who believe many religions can lead to eternal life. And that's stunning. That's a real sign of the times, by the way, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4, the the end times apostasy. Um, you know, another statistic was that 50% of American Christians say they believe non-Christian religions can lead to eternal life. Just another way to word the question. Because you know how these surveys are. They have all different questions, all kind of related, but coming at it from different angles. And while this is high, belief in many paths leading to eternal life drops among Christians when specifically asked about non-Christian faiths. So there's some disconnect between those who say 60% of, uh, you know, 66% of Christians who say many religions can lead to eternal life versus 50% who, when specified non-Christian religions, say that they can lead to eternal life. And, uh, and then this was interesting. 29% of American Christians say their religion is the only true faith. Well, if they were true Christians and understood what biblical Christianity is all about, that number would be 100%. Uh, and then 12% of American Christians say only Christianity will lead to another life, again, to eternal life, coming at it from a different angle. So one of the things we're going to see as we get to the second part of our time together tonight is that according to God's word, Christianity is exclusive. You know, Jesus taught that it was exclusive. So he was either a, a lunatic or a liar, or he was the son of God, and we believe what he said. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how did we get here? How did we get here? I want to take a moment in this first uh, hour to really uh, kind of put things in historical perspective. The era in which we live has been referred to by a number of different colloquialisms. You know, you call it uh, post-Christian world, post-truth world. Uh, by and large, human history can be divided still into three broad categories, the pre-modern world, the modern world, and now the post-modern world. 
by its nature, the postmodern world is changing rapidly, and really almost every 10 years we're seeing you know, new uh, paradigms and new philosophical worldviews. In fact, uh, as we're going to talk about this weekend on Saturday and Sunday, it's actually changing every few months now. It's, it's really frightening, except we're not to have fear. We're supposed to uh, you know, see things through the lens of Scripture. But it really is stunning how rapidly things are changing. But if you look at human history... Uh, through those three categories, the pre-modern era, the modern era, and the post-modern era, if you want to put these into some type of time perspective, 6,000 years of human history, by the way, uh, the pre-modern era lasted up until basically the year 1789. And uh, most people put the shift from the pre-modern era into the modern era at the storming of the Bastille, uh, as we kind of shifted into the, the, the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, all of those types of things, what is broadly speaking referred to as the modern era. And then the modern era was rather short-lived, and then most people uh, say that around 1989 is when scholars pinpoint the shift into the era in which we now live, the uh, post-modern era. Now, there's not like some you know, writing in the sky that says, thus saith the Lord, these are the time frames. But broadly speaking, this is a pretty good uh, idea to kind of give you, give you some time markers of, of where, we've, uh, where we've been. Uh, so if you kind of compare these two, up until the pre-modern era, the watchword was faith. I mean, until the modern era, the watchword was faith. In other words, everybody, even unbelievers, understood providence. They understood there was a creator. They understood they needed to rely on God. And they had faith of some kind. Sadly, not everybody placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for their sins. Certainly not everybody was a believer, but they recognized the value of faith. Once we entered the modern era, everything became about reason. If you couldn't see it, feel it, touch it, hear it, it didn't exist. It was all about sort of the scientific method and reasoning. But in the present age, it's all about bias. It's all about bias. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. So uh, in the pre-modern era, they had supernatural explanations. They understood there was something else going on. There was a divine uh, being that was in control. Uh, in the modern era, everything had a natural explanation. So as the modern era began to influence Christianity, especially in the West, and influence the church, you began to see a shift away from the miracles of God's Word into natural explanations. So anything that conflicted with the so-called science of the day, and I hope by now, especially with everything that's going on with the, with the uh, pandemic, you recognize that science is, by, is anything but empirical. It is all bought and paid for. It's not about what does the science say. It's about what is, you know, who, whose science is saying what. Is the science bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical industry, or is the science bought and paid for by the real heroes of the medical industry that are standing up to tyranny and to the false claims of uh, science falsely so-called. So, um, but uh, in the modern era, you know, everything had to make sense from the academy's perspective. And so that crept over into the church so that, you know, Adam and Eve became an allegory. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea was just low tide. Jonah was an allegory because everybody knows no one can survive being swallowed by a great fish. Uh, anything, that, you know, the flood wasn't global. It was just a localized, you know, flash flooding on Main Street kind of a deal. All, anything that, that was a miracle in Scripture was brushed aside. So everything had natural explanations. In the postmodern era, there are no explanations. You don't need an explanation. In fact, the less uh, clear something is, the better. This is the age of ambiguity and absence of certainty. 
And uh, so, you know, that, that's where we are uh, today. So you can't really argue anymore based on logic and rationality because people kind of have different reasons for landing where they land. So in the pre-modern era, the five senses were incomplete. It was readily admitted by believers and unbelievers alike. But in the modern era, again, if you couldn't see it, feel it, touch it, hear it, smell it, it didn't exist. But now we're back to the five senses being incomplete. What's interesting is the postmodern era has a, a renewed interest in the otherworldliness, a renewed interest in spiritual things and mystical things. The problem is, as Proverbs tells us, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So they're looking for the answers in all the wrong places. But no longer are they questioning whether there's something other than what you can see and feel and touch exists. They just think of it in terms of mysticism and new age and these types of things. Um, the key word in the pre-modern era was efficiency. If you think back to, uh, you know, this, even in our own country, the pioneer days when we were moving west, and you could picture maybe a little house on the prairie, uh, that era, you know, they, they, everything they had, they got themselves. They didn't run to Walmart to get stuff. They did it. And they, their food was because they hunted or grew gardens. Their shelter was because they built a cabin. Uh, their protection was because they had a gun and they were protecting themselves from hostile Indians or predators like bears or, you know, whatever. Um, and they, because it was all about efficiency, they didn't have much, but what they had, they made good use of. And they used, you know, things for multiple reasons, you know, the the wooden spoon that you stirred your stew in at night was the same one you paddled your children with and the same one you shoot off the, you know, the turkeys from coming up to your front porch or whatever. Uh, they, they, there was an efficiency to what they were doing. The modern era, though, was all about solutions because as technology expanded and we had more capabilities, we were, began to open up whole new frontiers of what we could do that we couldn't do previously. But today it's all about convenience. If you really stop and think about it, there's very little today that is being accomplished that is something entirely new. There are some, especially on the cutting edge of biometrics and those types of things. But by and large, it's, it's more about uh, convenience, right? You know, you don't need a smartphone to survive. No update, sorry. Uh, you don't need, I mean, I'm sorry for myself. You could care less probably, but I was hoping I could sneak a peek and find out. But anyway, um, uh, you don't need a smartphone to survive, right? Uh, smartphones just make it, you don't need to be able to check your email wherever you go. You don't need to be able to text. I mean, when I grew up, you, you didn't have cell phone. In fact, most of the early part of my ministry, we didn't have cell phones. Some people did, but it was very rare and very expensive. And uh, you don't need that. It just makes life a little easier, makes it more convenient. Um, so pre-modern era was all about revelation, meaning supernatural uh, revelation. Modern era, as I mentioned, was all about the scientific method. But today, it's the no absolute truth. In other words, they, they, they're okay. everybody has their own truth with a little t. Um, so the pre-modern era had a high view of the Bible. Obviously, the modern era had a low view of the Bible. They would disparage the Bible. They said, this isn't true. This is not something that people should live their lives by. But today, they have a self-serving view of the Bible. So if the Bible can bring me power or make me money or help me win my argument with certain audiences, then I'm all for it. But it's not the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So in the pre-modern era, it was duty. You are your function. Everybody had a job to do, you know. If 
you think again about the pioneer days, the children were all part of the family enterprise, and uh, you woke up very early, but long before the sun was up, and you gathered the eggs, or you milked the cows, or you did what you had to do, and after a couple hours of chores, you'd come in, and mom would have a big breakfast at the table, and you'd have breakfast, and then you'd go right back out into the fields and begin working, or hunting, or mending the fence, or doing what you're doing, and if you were lucky, you might have Somebody, one of the younger kids in the family, bring you a sack lunch about mid-afternoon and you could take a quick lunch break for a few minutes and then you'd come in and clean up and before supper you'd do a few more chores then you'd have a meal together as a family and then if you were blessed, you might get to sit around the fire, pop some popcorn and sing some songs with Pa's guitar for 30 minutes or an hour before you went to bed. But life was predominantly about working and, and your duties and your roles. Now think about that compared to today. Today, it's just the opposite. We struggle to get children to do 30 minutes of chores in exchange for multiple hours of entertainment and screen time and all of that. In the modern era, it became desire, you are your feelings. Whatever you can dream up, you can accomplish. It was a very optimistic time as we were making advancements. But today it's all about definition. You are your Facebook profile, right? It's all about image and perception. So it was about fulfill your duty. In the modern era it became find your dream and today it is frame your disguise. And it's very difficult to separate reality from uh, perception today. So with that kind of historical background, how has the postmodern thinking influenced the church and specifically the gospel? Well, in the church, if you think about Postmodernism, and again, I come from an academic background, so I tend to think in terms of you know higher education and the, the uh, trends that we've seen over the last 150 years, from the late 20th century to the present. And during the pre-modern era, it was all about dogmatic theology, right? You, dogmatic meaning this is empirical, this is the conclusion, we've landed somewhere, this is our doctrinal statement. But in the modern era, it turned into more of an academic discipline. So you had competing disciplines. Some people would study theology, which, by the way, used to be the queen of the sciences, the, the most educated and intelligent and, and uh, thinking uh, people in the, in the pre-modern era and, and in through the uh, early parts of the modern era were the ones who went to study the Bible. All of our institutions in this country started out as schools of the Bible, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and so forth. And uh, the highest discipline that you could study was the, the serious study of God's Word, Hebrew and Greek and theology, right? But at, as the modernism began to grow, then you had competing disciplines. So you might study medicine, or you might study engineering, or you might study, you know, other sciences, while at the same time studying theology. But eventually, theology got dwarfed, um, and uh, in the postmodern era now, theology is about experience, you know, uh, theology, if you think about it, is just about the only discipline today where everybody, it seems, feels qualified to, to have a, an opinion on the matter. Like, you know, I am I, not a medical doctor, and so when I go to my doctor, and my doctor says, you should do this or that, or here's the way this work, here's the problem, and you've got to fix this, or I don't sit back and say, well, here's what I think, and here's why you're wrong. Or when I go to get my car fixed, I'm not a mechanic. I don't tell the mechanic, well, you're crazy, that's just your opinion, and here's what I really think about the carburetor. Or what, do cars even have carburetors anymore? I don't know. Anyway, but theology, you know, you can study, 
you know, for years and years and years at the highest levels have thousands of letters after your name, and yet the average millennial who went to a John Piper conference is going to sit you down and tell you why you're wrong, <laughs> right? So it's really become more experiential, and that's a shame. So how does that affect the gospel? Well, if we think about in the pre-modern church, we saw a shift when it comes to theology in the church with the modern era. And it became a pretty clear dividing line between conservative and liberal theology. Conservative meaning you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Liberal meaning you think the Bible has errors in it. So it's no longer your standard. And over time, as we entered the postmodern era, this divide began to grow stronger and stronger, and it became very, very messy. And so over time, what ended up happening in the postmodern church where we live today is it became so uh, convoluted that the best we can offer for conservative theology is Brian McLaren's A General Orthodoxy, and on the liberal side, you had the whole missional concept of guys like Ed Stetzer and Alan Hirsch and others. And so what do we mean by general orthodoxy? Well, McLaren will say, oh yeah, we, there's definitely a standard, but we just want to cast such a broad net of that standard that just about anything goes. Whereas liberal theology says it doesn't matter what the standard is. We're not about the you know, orthodoxy, we're about the orthopraxy. It's, how, it's what you do and how you do it and why you do it. It has nothing to do with the standard. There are no lines of distinction. It's only circles of inclusion. So if you're familiar with Brian McLaren in his famous book, A Generous Orthodoxy, he subtitled that, and this was a highly acclaimed book. It was a bestseller, and he was on the speaking circuit for almost a decade hawking this book, and everybody thought he was a brilliant guy because he came up with the, the notion of a general orthodoxy, and the subtitle, which is too uh, small to see on the screen, so I'll tell you what it was, was A Generous Orthodoxy, Why I Am a Missional Evangelical Post-Protestant Liberal Conservative Anglican uh, or Mystic Poetic Biblical Charismatic Contemplative Fundamentalist Calvinist Anabaptist Anglican Methodist Catholic Green Incarnational Depressed Yet Hopeful Emergent Unfinished Christian, which is to say I'm not any one thing, I'm everything. And that's the problem. One of the chapters in his book was called The Seven Jesuses I Have Known. Well, if you believe the Bible, there's not seven Jesuses, there's one Jesus. And he died and rose again for your sins, and he's the only hope for sinful man against an eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. So, as it relates to the gospel, the gospel, according to Scripture, has always been, is has been and always will be information on how individuals can be rescued from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. Period. Full stop. That's the gospel. <laughs> but postmodern theology came along and added a very large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God. One of the chapters in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, deals with kind of a history of some major... Uh, conservative evangelical movements through the 20th century, one of which, by the way, is uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship. And I show in there how originally when sharing the gospel with kids, it was about how to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and it, became, and it morphed into how to make Jesus your new best friend. Right? That's the shift. And it impacted just about every good organization, Awana, many others as well. Uh, and so it was all about, 
you know, living your best life now, how to find meaning and purpose in life. It had nothing to do or very little to do with sin, hell, punishment, judgment, and it was about more relational. That was the postmodern influence on the gospel. And then they added another footnote about character development. And the gospel became more about how you act than who you know. <laughs> and it became less about knowing Jesus. And then they added another footnote about spiritual experience. And we saw this with the first, second, and third waves of the charismatic movement and how that began to make the gospel much, less ne much more nebulous and less precise. And then eventually another about you know, the social gospel and social global transformation. And essentially what we ended up coming up with is this missional philosophy that eclipsed the very simple, plain, clear teaching of God's word about the good news about how to have eternal life. And so we're fighting an uphill battle today. You know, our, the enemy is a formidable foe. Again, he hates the gospel. He wants to blind men's hearts to the gospel. He wants to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. And everywhere I go, and we've been in over a thousand churches in all 50 states multiple times, and uh, I see this battle just with slightly different nuances. And I can guarantee it's no different here in Alaska. And so we need churches like Pioneer Baptist who are willing to get back to the basics and bring back the Bible and, and make the gospel simple again. It hasn't changed, but it, we've certainly changed as an evangelical or Christian community on how we communicate it. So does the gospel matter? Absolutely it matters. And we certainly see that from the first century on. Paul, the very first letter that he ever wrote was Galatians, and he said, and he wrote this, by the way, in 49 AD. The historical context is very important of Galatians. Remember, Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, possibly 14 if he wrote Hebrews, which we don't officially know. Uh, I mean, I know. God, God revealed it to me in a bowl of spaghetti one time, but that's another, that's another story. But uh, officially, the biblical record is that only 13 letters and this was the first one he wrote chronologically. Even though Romans comes first in our New Testament, Galatians was written first. Paul had just gotten back from his first missionary journey with Barnabas. He had given a report to the church in Antioch. And, um, and no sooner did he get back than he began to hear reports. I guess, I don't know, saw it on Facebook or got a text or something that the, these new believers in the region of southern Galatia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and other places that he had just left and had just embraced the gospel, become born again, were being infiltrated by a group of Judaizers who were teaching them that not only do you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but you have to do good works. Namely, you have to be circumcised and, and follow the Jewish law. Well, Paul was so troubled by that that I believe that he, he immediately got on a boat to head to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, which was held in 50 AD, Acts chapter 15, where they were going to begin to address some of these issues in the early apostolic age before the Bible was complete. But he didn't wait to get to Jerusalem and get the definitive ruling on the matter. He put pen to paper and pen to sheepskin or papyrus or whatever it was in the, in the, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the letter to Galatians. And so it's very interesting to me that right out of the chute, the first thing that the Apostle Paul, that great missionary and writer of Scripture, said was, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what I've preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema, or uh, come under strict judgment, is uh, the idea. And what's interesting is he compares anything that contradicts what he had preached to them uh, 
as a false gospel. Well, we know we have a biblical historical record of exactly what he preached to them. It's found in Acts 13 and 14 as he made those journeys, and we see the record of what he taught. And it's consistent with the record of the whole counsel of God on the essence of the gospel. And so notice what he, he says uh, in this opening remarks of Galatians. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, does the gospel matter? Paul sure thought, thought it did. The old King James actually is a little bit uh, hard to really see the essence of what he's saying here because he uses the same English translation twice. It says, I, I marvel that you are uh, turning from another gospel, which is not another. And it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. He's claiming they're turning to another gospel, but then he says it's not another. The New King James, which is what I'm using here, at least uses a different English word. He says you're turning to a different gospel, which is not another. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the word different here is the Greek word heteros, and it means another of a different kind. In other words, entirely different. The word another is the Greek word alas, which means different, but of the same kind. Right? So let me illustrate what he means here when he says you're turning to an entirely different heteros gospel and not just something that's the same kind but slightly different. The word alas here, translated another, uh, would be like basically saying, uh, you know, a red delicious apple versus, say, a Braeburn apple, right? Someone might say, well, they're both apples, right? Yeah, they're different, but they're the same kind, right? They're both apples. And what Paul was saying here is that the gospel that the Galatians were turning to was not just another of the same kind. It wasn't just a slight modification of the pure gospel. It wasn't just a, a modifications here and there and slight twists here and there. It was entirely uh, different. And, and that's what he means by the word different, heteros. It would be like comparing a red delicious apple to, say, an orange. And actually, it's even stronger than that because at least you could argue in this case they're both fruits, right? And Paul says, no, 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 D different. Heteros is completely different. It's like comparing an, an apple to poison, which is not a bad illustration because the gospel that they were hearing from these Judaizers who had crept in after Paul left town to try to you know, injure him and do damage to his message were poisoning these, uh, these people. In fact, he claims they were perverting the gospel of Christ. That word uh, pervert there is the Greek word metastrepho. Uh, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it's going to say distort or twist. Now, this word metastrepho is only used two other times in the entire New Testament, and it's either verb or noun form. And it's interesting, if you kind of look at how it's used, it kind of gives you a sense of, of the power of this word metastrepho. It's used by Peter in his famous sermon in Acts 2 when he's quoting Joel 2, and he said, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That word turned is the word metastrepho. And then it's used by James, the Lord's brother, in James 4 when he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, what do you notice about those two usages of metastrepho? In both cases, it's a 180-degree opposite, from light to darkness, from joy to gloom. And that's why Paul uses it in Galatians, because that's what these Judaizers were doing. By adding a little bit of works to the grace gospel, they had actually turned it 180 degrees opposite. 
They had turned the good news into bad news. They had turned a free gift into an impossible solution. Because there's no amount of good works that anyone can ever do that can meet the standard that God has for eternal life. You know, the standard is perfection. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 48. So here, anybody that wants to get to heaven, all they have to do is be perfect. Just be perfect. Now, the problem is, we, we know both intuitively and experientially, as well as on the authority of God's word, that we're not perfect. Everybody in this room knows you've sinned. And the Bible tells us that. There's not one righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes says there's not a person on earth who is righteous and has never sinned. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. David says, from the moment of conception, I'm a sinner. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And that's what sinners do, right? You know, you're born in sin. And anybody who's had children kind of can experience that. Our granddaughter is two years old and, you know, she's turned into a little sinner. <laughs> the reality is she didn't turn into one. She was a sinner from the time she was born. I was present when all six of our children were born, held every one of them, cut the cord, and had them seconds after they were born. And I looked down at them and I thought, here's a little sinner. <laughs> and I was right. I mean, I was absolutely right. Uh, and so we need a Savior because we're sinners. And that Savior is in Jesus Christ. And so the way we, the only way we can be perfect and meet the standard of righteousness that heaven requires is to have it imputed to us, have it given to us as a free gift. And that's the reason Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to put on human flesh, live a perfect, holy, sinless life. He was the only one who could pay the penalty for the sins of the world because he didn't have any sins of his own to pay for. In other words, as much as I love Mark, I do, I do love him. Uh, I mean, I've got a few footnotes there, but that, we'll save that for another day. But I love Mark. I, I could never die for his sins. You know why? I've got enough sins of my own on my shoulders. As much as I love my children or my wife or anybody, I can't, I can't pay your penalty because I've got my own to worry about. But Jesus Christ, the, the perfect God-man, had no sins. So when he went to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he had room on his shoulders for not just my sins and Mark's, but everyone in this room and everyone in the whole world. 1 John 2 tells us he is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin for the whole world. And so he did that because he was the only one who could. He paid a debt he didn't know because he owed a debt he could never pay. And then he defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead three days later, gaining the victory, purchasing forgiveness and eternal life with his own shed blood, as we just uh, sang about a moment ago. And then he offers that gift freely to all. And the only way we can receive that gift is by faith. You know, in, in, in physical realm, when, you know, we had Zoe's birthday party, my granddaughter, a, a week or so ago on September 1st, and she had these presents. We handed her the presents, and with her little two-year-old hands, she took the presents, and then she opened them. That's the way she received the gift, physically. If I were to give a gift to Mark or to anyone here, you would, you would take possession by physically grasping it. It goes from me to you. Now it's yours. It's in your possession. But in the spiritual realm, the hands with which we receive the gift of eternal life 
our faith. Faith is the gift, is the means of receiving the gift, right? And so when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, and you place it solely in Him as the only one who can give you eternal life, in that simple act of faith, you're justified. You're born again. You're declared righteous. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and was declared righteous, right? So it's by faith that we are justified. So what is the gospel? Well, I've said it several times, but uh, what I set out to do in my uh, book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, uh, which, as Mark said, started out as a uh, PhD dissertation, was I wanted to say, what precisely do we have to believe to have eternal life? Because remember, I had grown up using the words, right? Believe in Jesus. Sign this card. Make this commitment. Give your life to Jesus. Pray this prayer. Sign this card. What, you know, walk this aisle. What, but, and, and, and in the culture in which I grew up in, we just said those things and assumed everybody knew what it meant. But the more I read the Bible, the more I studied God's Word, I began to realize, you know, this is a pretty weighty matter. Our eternal destiny rests upon getting this right. And I need more clarity, right? And so I wanted to find out what precisely do we have to believe? Because as we're going to see in the second hour tonight, a lot of people say it's faith alone, right? The cry of the Reformation, sola fide. But they mean something entirely different than what I mean, or Pastor Mark means when he says faith alone. So we have to define our terms. What precisely do I have to believe to have eternal life? So let's call that information X. X is exactly what you have to believe to, be, you know, to have eternal life. Because people can and do believe many things in life, don't they? Right? Um, I believe the Dallas Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl. But that's not going to get me into heaven because I believe that, right? And it's not going to get me into the Super Bowl. My, my sons don't believe me when I say the Cowboys used to be in the playoffs every year and win the Super Bowl every day. They don't believe me. They've never seen it. And they're 20-something, uh, 22 and 20, I think. I don't know. A child believes in Santa Claus. But that's believing in Santa Claus isn't going to get you to heaven, right? People believe many things, but it doesn't get them to heaven. But when you believe X, which we're calling the gospel, it gets you to heaven. So the question really is, what is X? What is the content of saving faith? What is it that when I believe it, instantly transforms me from death to life? I'm born again. My sins are forgiven. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I have peace with God. I'm reconciled to a holy God. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. I'm adopted into the family of God. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I, and, you know, the Holy Spirit takes up residence permanently indwelling me and all these other things that happen instantaneously the moment faith meets the right object. What is X? So I got to thinking about it, and this is just the way my analytical mind works. And the first question, which is more of an epistemological question, is, is the content of saving faith knowable? Can we know, can we identify what this is? If salvation comes from believing something, is it possible to find out what that something is? And so with that 
fundamental question on the table, it was pretty easy, easy to, to go two different directions. If the answer to that question is no, well, then no one can ever be saved, right? If you have to believe X to be saved, but we have no way to know what X is, no one can be saved. You with me? But if the answer to that question is yes, yeah, we can know what that is, then, of course, there's hope. And then the natural question is, what is it? Tell me what it is. I want to believe X. I want to believe that which makes me alive again, that which gives me eternal life. I want to believe X. What is it? So what must we believe about Jesus? That's really the question. Do we have to believe that he exists? Is that enough? Or that he walked on water? Or that he's a Jew? Or that he's from Nazareth? Or that he had 12 disciples? Or that he turned water into life? What, what precisely do I have to believe about Jesus if I want to have eternal life? Well, the Bible calls this the gospel. The gospel. So now we have a target. We know what we're looking for. The content of saving faith has a name. It's called the gospel. The good news. So, in seeking to find out precisely what we have to believe to be saved, we can simply reframe the question by saying, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's what it all comes down to. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. Not the potential for eternal life or the possibility for eternal life or the prospect of eternal life. Eternal life in that instant when you believe the gospel. So we've got to hit the right target, and that's really what my passion is. Now, thankfully, and I talk about this in the book, we serve a God who is fully capable of hitting a home run with a crooked stick. Right? I know if I go back and listen to some of my early messages, uh, you know, I've been guilty of being sloppy in my presentation of the gospel, using unclear language, using words that aren't really as precise as they should be. And by some miracle, the Holy Spirit uses that, and eventually the person is able to, uh, to, to hear and understand and believe the clear, pure gospel. Praise God for that. But just because God can hit a home run with a crooked stick does not mean that we should step up to the plate every time with crooked sticks. We, we want to we let the gospel do its work. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. And if I'm not preaching a clear gospel, then you know, that's, I'm not letting, giving the Holy Spirit the tools that he needs to convict someone of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we've got to get the gospel right. We've got to hit the target. Um, do, you go, do they have moose hunting in, 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 uh, in Alaska? I mean, I know there are a lot of moose. There, there are a lot of moose in Colorado, too. Uh, but yeah, that's what well, I thought. I thought that was pretty safe ground. There. I mean, I know there's elk hunting and deer hunting, and I grew up hunting, but I never hunted moose. But even though I've never hunted moose, I have some idea from my experience as a hunter, kind of how it works. So correct me if I'm wrong. Now this is really deep, so follow closely. But you you've got to hit the moose if you want to kill it, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure if the arrow, let's say you're a bow hunter or, you know, you're 30-06 or 270, whatever you're using, misses the moose by three yards to the right, that moose is not just going to lay down, roll over and say, close enough, you got me, right? <laughs> you got to hit the moose 
to get the moose. Well, you got to hit the target when you're sharing the gospel. Uh, can people be saved by believing anything? Can they be saved by other religions like we saw at the beginning a moment ago? Is it going to church that saves them? Is it their good works and effort? What is the target? Well, it's the gospel. You've got to preach the gospel so that people can hear and believe the gospel. The gospel in Greek is used 77 times. It, it's the word euangelion. It's where we get the English word evangelism, evangelistic, or those, those types of words. Uh, like all words, it, it's defined by its usage, and there are places in the 77 usages of this word in the New Testament where it just means some, general, generally speaking, good news. But there are also many other times when the word gospel very clearly and specifically refers to that which must be believed in order to have eternal life. So we can define the gospel most simply as the good news about the person and work of Christ, which when believed brings eternal life. Now in the book, and I'm not going to go through this right now, but I go through and show very clearly how the word is used in the New Testament to refer to content, words, truth, meaning, uh, you know, gospel has to have content to be, uh, to be, you have to have content to be saved. And that, co that content is articulated and summed up in the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. Lewis Berry Schaefer put it this way. Uh, he's the, if you don't know, the founder of Dallas Seminary and a great theologian, um, like all human theologians, wasn't necessarily right about everything, right? Um, but he's a pretty solid guy. And he said, preaching the gospel is telling men something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are then to believe. He went on to say, the gospel has not been preached until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented and in a form which calls for the response of personal faith. So what I've come to realize through the years is that responding to the gospel is less about walking an aisle, signing a card, raising a hand, saying a prayer, repeating certain verbiage. It's about who are you trusting? Has there been a time in your life when you recall placing your faith in Jesus Christ the Son of God, who took your personal place on the cross, paid your penalty for sin, rose from the dead, and then offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. So that's why this matters. It matters very seriously because if we're not getting it right, then again, it's not us that's doing the saving and it's not our books or you know, our efforts or our sermons. It's the Holy Spirit who's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But the Word of God tells us He's doing that through the gospel. That is the power of God to salvation for those who believe it. So we've got to get it uh, right. So before we break, we'll take a break here and then uh, and, and have some fellowship and some food. And those of you that are live streaming, uh, you can go uh, check out the, the, uh, the victory celebration in the Cowboys locker room during the break and then come back. At uh, what time are we starting? 7.30? 7.30 for the second question. But I do want to close out by mentioning a couple of uh, resources. The, my newest book uh, that just came out within the last year 
It's called Top 10 Reasons Some People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to. And I'm really, really proud of this work. It's something I've been uh, toying with for many years. And uh, finally, uh, with the pandemic and all of our events being canceled last year, I was able to kind of really put my nose to the grindstone and, and, and knock this out. But it is both an evangelistic tool for skeptics. And if you read the preface, I actually talk to those who may be skeptics directly. Uh, and then, but it's also for believers, a great apologetic work that helps us understand why someone might refuse a free gift as valuable as eternal life. Because what I've come to, to, to discover just through experience is that really there are uh, several reasons why someone might be inclined to reject the free offer of eternal life. And so that's ultimately the only, there's only one reason anyone ends up in hell is they've not believed the gospel. But what would cause someone not to believe the gospel? And that's what I get into in that book. Uh, also, getting the gospel wrong, we have those out there. And Mark has mentioned that for those of you that uh, will commit to reading it, he'd like the church to offer that to you. So we appreciate that. I have another longer book uh, that I was privileged to work on with Roy Zook uh, called Freely by His Grace. It's a compendium of 16 uh, chapters and I think 14 contributors. Uh, I have a couple of chapters in there, but I think that's a must-read for anybody that really wants to study this whole issue in more depth. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum is a short little 80-page booklet with no footnotes, just the gospel unplugged, plain and simple uh, good news, and that's over there uh, as well. So uh, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll come back for part two, misunderstandings about the gospel. Father, thank you for uh, this time together tonight, and thank you just for the precious gift of grace that we find uh, in your redemptive plan and uh, redeeming us from the curse of sin through the shed blood of your Son and our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, just